Thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. Today, we're diving into sleep tech with Dr. Logan Schneider, co-director of the Stanford VA Alzheimer's Research Center and clinical assistant professor of sleep medicine at Stanford. Dr. Schneider has advised a number of health tech startups and currently consults for Alphabet, the parent company of Google. He is the medical advisor that helped develop Google's new sleep sensing device. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Schneider. Thanks for having me. So you're really plugged into how Silicon Valley is looking at sleep, so much so that you participated in a discussion about this at the recent AASM Sleep Medicine Disruptors course. And I think you raised a few eyebrows when you suggested that we shouldn't let perfection get in the way when it comes to measuring sleep. Can you tell me a little bit more about this? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So. Uh, as you know, right, our understanding of sleep has uh, been an evolving process from the standpoint of the clinical community, right? Three plus four has turned into equals N3. Uh, there's also a bit of variability even in the application of ASM's well thought out and evolving rules um, from technician to technician. So we do know that our understanding of sleep is obviously evolving. Uh, and in mind of this, right, it, te- technology in the, in the consumer domain uh, doesn't often have to be striving for the perfect uh, polysomnogram, right? So it's not trying to make sure that there's a polysomnogram, polysomnogram at your bedside. The goal is obviously to try and get an understanding of sleep that is usable and meaningful. I was going to say, you're kind of right, right? We kind of tend to focus on the little things instead of maybe taking a step back and look, just like, do you remember that exactly what you're talking about when they got rid of stage four? So I was, um, I think I just finished fellowship at that time. And when they came out and they're like, oh, we're going to get rid of stage four. At first, I was like, what do you mean? We can't do this. This is wrong, you know, because I really would agonize on a sleep study. Is this three? Is this four? And I'd pull out the ruler. And then like in my grown up job and I look back, I was like, oh, this is way easier. This makes way more sense. Mm-hmm, <laughs> so mm-hmm. I kind of wonder, you know, is this kind of what we're doing? Like you're saying, like, does it really matter? how we're describing this or isn't it better to get a, a feel for sleep wake right deep light yeah yeah and that's that's one of the fundamental questions i'm often wondering in the clinical sleep lab too is we're often getting this snapshot of people and we're doing it in a very biased way i think about it like heisenberg's uncertainty principle you either know what direction something is going or what position it's in but you can't know both at once and so oh. in order to you know explore somebody's sleep we often have to perturb it and even if we wanted to do the high fidelity polysomnogram at home every night, I don't think most people would be very happy about getting that as part of like any tech company's uh, mission. <laughs> yeah. So it's really looking at data in large numbers to actually hone in on the reality rather than trying to get a highly granular spot uh, assessment. Well, and isn't it weird? Because for other diseases, that's totally normal, right? For heart failure and diabetes, we are good at focusing on longitudinal data, but for you know, for us, I, I mean, I suppose for our sleep apnea patients, we get longitudinal PAP utilization data, right? Mm-hmm. But we don't really have any sort of meaningful way of getting longitudinal data for RBD or insomnia. I mean, we get diaries and we ask them, but is technology maybe something that'll help us with this? I mean, 
are how do you use technology for your non sleep apnea patients? Yeah, uh, this is a a challenge that I think all of us are facing, and sometimes we don't choose technology; it's actually actually brought to us by our patients. True. Uh, and fortunately, I think as sleep clinicians, we're one of the fields that is actually poised to deal with this. I love the fact that we have PAP data to look at sleep longitudinally, and we often have to think about it like this. So when somebody comes in and brings their device, I recognize, look, I'm not trying to look at your device and scrutinize every night's uh, hypnogram. I'm trying to look at it in aggregate and look at things over time and try and get an understanding of unusual patterns and also the aggregate understanding of, oh, were you having um, you know, general trends that are going in the right direction? Or are you even staying stable? So I try and integrate all of that information and also give credence to the, the patient's lived experience where they're like, this is what I'm feeling in relation to the data I'm looking at and integrate that into the story overall. But it is difficult because tech is somewhat siloed and even all of the different tech that comes in is also siloed. So I don't, you know, to integrate it in, it's really, I have to create the narrative myself. And so do you, do you find that you use that for your non-OSA patients more than your OSA patients? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even when it's for things like the CBTI coach app that exists, where having people enter their data into the the app, and then you can actually track and monitor that data over time. Uh, I absolutely use that. And also I have patients come in and then we try and align their experience on a PAP report with their wearable data and say, you know, is this, is this how you're feeling? And also it gives me an essence of, uh, are you actually having an effective AHI that's higher than what the machine is telling me? Because are you sleeping beyond what the device is telling me? <laughs> so there's all that stuff that happens outside of, uh, outside of the clinic that I need to be able to get a, an assessment of. And when patients come in and tell me, ah, last night was bad, is that truly last night was bad? Or oh, sorry, the last month was bad. Is that truly the last month was bad or was last night bad? And the whole month is reflected by that. So, Well, uh, and that's just it, right? You're, you're totally right. You hit on something that Matt, Matt Bianchi coined, that, not, that off pap sleep time. And, and so I've found it really helpful. You know, like you'll, you'll have somebody that gets like six or eight hours on their CPAP. And, and I have to admit, sometimes I don't even think about it. When I see a download that's got like eight hours of sleep and an AHI of less than one, I'm like, this is great. Mm -hmm. And then you look at their Fitbit or what have you, and they're still taking a two-hour nap in the afternoon. <laughs> right? yeah. and I'm like, okay, hang on. <laughs> like, what are we missing here? And yeah. so I think, you know, for that, from that standpoint, just like you described, um, I, I think it's helpful. And what I really appreciate about the way that you talked about this um, is that it is an adjunct to and not a replacement for sleep testing. So what is the role for technology when we start talking about sleep apnea diagnosis? Yeah, uh, that's a, a great point, right? Is that I don't think this technology is any means of uh, supplanting clinical practice. It's obviously meant as an augmenting tool, right? And that's what technology hopefully is going to empower, because obviously a physician has to lay eyes on things and help make meaning out of it. Uh, data is just data. And we've known that for a long time. You can give people lots of data and they're not going to make the appropriate decisions in their healthcare. We have that about, you know, vaccination. We have that about uh, you know, other levels of uh, public health messaging, like smoking, that people know the data and sometimes they need help making the right decisions. So I think that's one frame of how this is going to be useful is bringing people uh, a meaningful interpretation of information, but obviously through the lens of how clinicians can help interpret that. Tell me a little bit more about that. What other things are you using sleep technology for? 
Yeah, so I think there are a lot of different ways that we can apply uh, this technology. First, obviously, from the health and wellness standpoint, we want to make sure that healthy sleepers are aware of what their sleep is doing, but also how we can uh, give them information at the point that it's right for them to actually make a change that's meaningful to their sleep and, and their health. Uh, and obviously, that's in the more consumer-based space, right? How we can identify a, a, a pattern that may benefit from a little bit of information, maybe a, maybe a suggestion that may or may not apply. Hey, it looks like you're having a little bit of time falling asleep. Maybe coffee isn't something you should be drinking in the afternoon. Oh, then, so these are more little nudges. Based, nudges, yeah. on, based on the data, right? And sort of not these big, huge, you must go to bed at 10 and wake up at 6. It's more this little tiny nudge, right? In the in the right direction. Exactly. Little tiny, hey, are you aware of this? And what can we do to change? Yeah, because you don't want me sitting at your bedside waving the finger every single night. We want to make sure that people are, one, aware of things that they might be able to do and see if it it's something they want to try out and improve. But also, too, let them know that they are doing a good job. I mean, a lot of people are doing what they're supposed to do and their body's doing what it needs to do. And so they're getting uh, healthy sleep. And so also congratulating people on, hey, you're doing a good job. You may not be aware, but your sleep is actually helping you. So keep it up. Oh, I love that. It's so often we get chastised by our devices, right? Like my watch tells me all the time, get up, you can do it. You've, you know, you closed your rings yesterday and get up and do it today. And, and yeah, I mean, it's never telling me anything great. <laughs> it's telling me to do more. Yeah. Well, there is also an element of that, right? I, I mean, as we know, people are doing, uh, are not sleeping their best every night, but that's not something that we also took great pains to make sure that people weren't feeling overly chastised because, you know, it's not something that you want to be hearing every single night or every single morning. Yeah, that's probably true, right? Because then it makes you sort of more resistant or, or less willing to listen to it. Like exactly. I finally had to turn my thing off on my phone that kept telling me to breathe during the day. I'm like, I'm in the middle of clinic. I don't have yeah, time to, gonna, to yeah. breathe. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to do some body breathing right now, but I'm three behind. And yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a, I think there's a, a, a tendency for everyone to taper off on that. Even, even me and the, and sleep training our children and what have you. It's just like, you know, some nights you just want to relax and I don't want to get alarm fatigue in the average person because we get plenty of that in the, in the healthcare setting. So why not let people live their life to some degree? I love that. I, I love and that. I think that's such an important message for us too, right? Like even when we talk about whatever intervention we want to do for sleep, we want to be respectful of what they do every day and what their normal life is, right? So mm -hmm. if you have somebody that has to wake up at four in the morning, you know, our, our recommendations are going to be a little bit different right. than for somebody who has more flexibility during the day, you know, or I have one guy who just the only thing that brings him pleasure in life is smoking. Mm -hmm. And so he's just super sensitive if you talk about, you know, not smoking. And I respect that. You know, he's had a lot of stuff happen to him and I totally respect that and I, and I don't bug him about it, but I think it is part of meeting our patients where they are, right? And so I, I love that you've adopted that philosophy too. Yep, absolutely. You need to make sure that, and obviously as it evolves, people will give their input on, uh, that's the nice part about, I guess, sometimes likelihood to refers, I guess you can look at that as a positive spin on that, but also in the consumer space, people are going to be giving their opinion. They, you know, they vote on whether or not they like the device and they're you know quite uh vocal about that and so that's one place where the iteration happens very quickly 
And people internally will start looking at you and saying, well, what did you tell this person? It's like, uh, I told them to sleep healthily, right? So <laughs> you need to make sure that, that I think that's actually good because it will promote a much faster iteration in, um, in, that, in, that, in that space. But you know what, though? That's really great because that's on such a huge scale that we're not, you know, that's probably hard for us to grasp one-on-one versus this giant scale and knowing what messaging is appropriate or or people are receptive, I suppose, to that messaging versus other messaging. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I find that I I would love to look at the panels of my patients and get uh, a gauge of how well I'm doing on all of them in aggregate, because not only is is it about curing this one person sitting in front of me, but, you know, I just want to know, am I doing well for everybody? And they might want context. Like, is this the person who's the right person who's all of their patients are doing well and I'm the outlier. Maybe I should get in get on board. And I think that that allows us to have a larger context for how we're doing as a whole, uh, rather than sometimes just the what's sitting in my clinic room, which is obviously the most valuable thing in impacting life's uh, a life one on one. But also, I want to make sure that I'm not just, you know, tapping myself on the back. I did a good job because that one made me feel good for the whole day. Just just imagine what our practices are going to look like in 10 years, right? We're going to look back and be like, oh, I can't believe we were scared of this or, or, you know, I can't believe we, you know, whatever. It's just, it's so funny how technology really is pushing us in, in so many different directions now. Yeah. I mean, I just even thinking about in inpatient, right? It's like back in the day, somebody had to decipher my scribble. Now I, now they get a, a, you know, an order that comes in actual type font that they can read. So it's actually a completely different world. <laughs> and hopefully this would be one of those paradigm shifts that augments everybody's experience. Yeah. That's awesome. And and I think that when we start talking about the um, capabilities of this technology and specifically the direct to consumer or consumer facing sleep technology, um, I think this makes a lot of people nervous, right? I mean, we saw a lot of changes when we went from PSG to HSAT and overnight we had a bunch of sleep labs that closed. And so I think there's always a little bit of anxiety that that happens in this space. So do you see the day where consumer facing sleep technology then will replace our current testing? Uh, I don't. I don't think so. Uh, and the reason why I don't think that is just looking at the ASM's efforts uh, to recognize the awareness around obstructive sleep apnea and the undiagnosed proportion of the population that is out there with sleep apnea who's not getting care. I think that's an emphasis of something that is possibly an aspect of equity and access, right? We're talking about a lot of people who probably aren't aware of their condition and certainly may not have access to the expertise of a sleep medicine center near them. And so while telehealth has certainly broadened that reach, uh, it's, you know, finding your way into the medical system can come through many different pathways. And so while it's true, like actually if you have public health messaging that's effective, people may be healthier and therefore not need to come into the, the clinical domain or may actually realize that they are healthy and actually not seek care, which is something we see in, in Silicon Valley a lot. But it's also a, a chance for this type of thing to reach out to individuals and they can say, hey, look, now I have a frame of reference. How am I doing? And if I'm not doing well, maybe I should actually seek somebody out. And this actually can provide, you know, in complement with telemedicine approaches, maybe even a way of triaging individuals so that the most appropriate cases come to us, particularly most appropriate cases that actually need in-lab polysomnography, because there's no dearth of need out there. We actually have an imbalance between patients and providers. This actually might be a, a way to, to identify people who come in properly, 
uh, getting the right inpatient care and in-lab PSG versus the many who also can just be served through home sleep apnea testing or even many who may not even need healthcare at all. And so it, it, it can help people understand and increase their sleep IQ and, and land the right people in our practice. So I think that's a, a great way of looking at it. Not that it's meant to diagnose, right? We're not, you know, some technology is trying to do that, but others are just trying to inform so that people are aware of sleep. And, and that alone could, uh, could drive referrals if people are like, whoa, I didn't know I had this problem. <laughs> well, and I think we're probably more aligned. Um, you know, I think there's always just this natural apprehension with anything that's new. And so I love this idea that we're, we're all aligned with trying to improve the sleep literacy of our communities and really then help our patients get the care that they need. And so I feel, based on what you're sharing with me, that this is more of a collaborative approach as opposed to a competitive approach. Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, you know, I think a great way to also look at that is, you know, in our clinical assessments, we see people intermittently. And as you mentioned, there are a lot of disorders that are intermittent disorders that are hard to monitor. Uh, so while our clinical application, you know, the in-person care and, and connection between provider and patient is essential, and also getting the really fine-grained data to make an accurate assessment of how sleep is going is like the PSG. You can think of this as like the oligosomnogram, something that tracks <laughs> along in between and then helps us keep an eye on how is this person doing, particularly when it comes to therapeutic intervention. Not everybody gets a PAP report when they're treating their OSA. So I think there, this is a, another way to enable us to have objective evidence of, of what we're doing for our patients and how well we're doing. The democratization of sleep, right? Absolutely. Yep. So let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll learn more about Google's new sleep sensing product. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Do you have the next great idea to turn sleep care upside down? Register for AASM Change Agents and a chance to win a share of $25,000. Rethink the diagnosis and treatment of obstructive sleep apnea. Learn more about this exciting competition at aasm.org change agents. Welcome back to Talking Sleep. We're chatting with Dr. Logan Schneider, a neurologist and sleep specialist who advised Google on the development of its new sleep sensing device. So you've really made sure that sleep medicine is at the table for this project, right? So tell me about what your goals were in working with Google on this new device and tell me a little bit more about this device. Yeah, yeah. So my involvement, uh, obviously, I thought was very visionary for Google to recognize the importance of having the clinicians at the table in order to help people in general. And I think the awareness and helpfulness for the average person was the intention here. Uh, my involvement, obviously, was to help calibrate that, make sure that they weren't, you know, certainly if, if you're not trying to diagnose people and you're just trying to promote health and wellness, then don't diagnose them is one thing. So it helps <laughs> give them balance. Obviously, don't want to make mistakes. Um, but the other aspect is, well, how do you then communicate what we, you know, have spent years training to refine into a person, a personalized one-on-one -on -one encounter? How do you help them do that? And I, I think that there, we strived to do that just like Google has strived to organize the world's information, right? We want to take some of the best science uh, and evidence that exists and help people understand what's going on with normal sleep and normal circadian rhythms. And I felt that Dan Bicey's um, elegantly constructed, conceptualized, are you sated paradigm for sleep health was a great framework. Think about the multidimensional nature of sleep and how 
all of these different dimensions can inform you about how healthy your sleep is and then help simplify that for people to understand and digest. So my goal was obviously how do we inform people, increase their sleep IQ, as I said, like give them awareness about sleep and, and whether or not they're on the right track. We don't want to over pathologize what is normal. Uh, but also then give them guidance to say, hey, you know, this is an area where you might not have thought that's critical to your sleep, like sleeping in on the weekends. Yeah, I'm catching up on Z's, but maybe that's actually disrupting your circadian rhythm. So try and keep on track and you'll you'll be even better than you are. Like, don't just walk, run. And so that was uh, the ultimate um, concept that I tried to bring to the table is how do we inform people about what can be the best sleep that they can attain? Well, and I love that you shared that quote at, at the Sleep Disruptors course that health is not the absence of disease, right? I mean, that's pretty profound. Tell me about the partnership with the AASM to provide evidence-based recommendations and sleep tips. Absolutely. Yeah. So in mind of trying to translate science to uh, the everyday person who's just living their life and sleeping their nights, uh, you obviously want to make sure that it's useful, incredible information, something that's gone through the rigor of evaluation by the experts. And so that's really, you know, it was basically obvious that the major organization that does this and, and disseminates the best evidence around the world is American Academy of Sleep Medicine. And so partnering with them based on messages that they already are working on, you know, think about sleepeducation.org. It's a trove of information and making sure that messaging is not only geared toward clinical uh, sides of evidence, but also geared toward just making sure that people are healthy. We don't want to just treat people once they have a disease, but also want to make sure that they're actually living their lives their fullest way, functioning at their best, which is not just the absence of disease, but actually living well. And so as a starting point, obviously, there are a lot of messages the ASM has already put out that we can help people find. Just like I said, Google organizes the world's information. Well, instead of having you go to a computer terminal and search that, you're already giving us the information if you track a sleep pattern and we say, hey, you know, this is something that you might want to consider doing or something that might be off for you. Does that jive with what you're feeling? And then that can bring that to bear immediately at the person's uh, fingertips or basically at their device or their bedside to make sure that they understand what's going on. Oh, I love this idea. I mean, you're basically empowering our communities to improve their sleep health. So what kind of information will they be able to see? Yeah, uh, a multitude of information. And, and once again, we had to limit that so it's not over overwhelming, right? As, as you know, right, we don't want to develop some sort of uh, orthosomnia in individuals where they're too tied to outcome-based data. Uh, so we intentionally wanted to simplify things. Identify domains of sleep health generally. Is your sleep adequate? Adequate kind of a hybrid of duration and sleep efficiency, uh, what's your routine like? Are you sleeping at a consistent on a consistent schedule? Are you doing it at a time that's generally healthy for your body and what your in, internal chronotype might be? And then also some sense of what is that ineffable quality that's going on, often related to environmental factors that a lot of people are not quite clear on, even though sleep hygiene uh, is not obviously a gold standard therapy. It certainly is something that a lot of people are striving to refine and improve, and that's something that we can help. So those are the main principles, but then what do you do with them? That's really the question. And so just giving people data on a nightly basis is often retrospective, but I want to make sure that people are actually looking at that from the standpoint of what are my actions doing that make sleep an outcome for me that then is, a, you know, ultimately results in better days. And so we want to look at the behaviors surrounding sleep and emphasize that. Put the data 
as a secondary layer. Make sure that people are saying, oh, if I get into bed and give myself enough time to fall asleep, my body will do what it needs to do, what it's been trained to do over billions of years of evolution. And so really want to help people not only see the data, but then interpret how their actions can influence that data. And so that's really what we're trying to do. So more forest, right? Fewer trees? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> yeah, you'll get tra- trapped under that tree if it ever falls. So, Well, and, and in your talk at the Disruptors course, which is very good, by the way, um, y- you mentioned that people are getting this data, right? Like that data you, you, that you've already talked about and they're getting it from their trackers or their apps or what have you. Um, and they don't necessarily know what to do with it right? Like they have a score, a sleep score of 76 mm-hmm. and they don't know what the next step is, right? So how is this partnership then? How is that changing things? Is it just via the messaging? Well, I think it's not just the messaging. And I think this is also why a partnership with an organization like the ASM is essential, is this is an evolving field. It's a, a realm of where we're per- pulling back the covers and seeing sleep in a way that we haven't really looked at it much in the past. And so, and in particular, from the standpoint of health, like we're focusing on trying to manage all of the disorders. Uh, and oftentimes the people who are doing a good job are something that we don't see. So we have this sense of a bias, like if you came in, you have a disease type, type of thing. And so looking at that from the standpoint of how the American Academy of Sleep Medicine has already put out messages, like, are you getting, a, this is the duration recommendation, is taking a look at this data, a new format. We're seeing it longitudinally, has slightly different signals and learning from that. And making sure that actually, as we go forward, how does this integrate into understanding of sleep health, as well as understanding of sleep disease? And the only way to do that is to actually pair with the people who know what's going on, the scientists and the clinicians who actually understand sleep on a, on a fundamental level. You know, I never thought about that. You're right. If you go to a sleep clinic, it's because you think that there's some sort of pathological thing wrong with your sleep, right? Mm-hmm. I never thought about that. Yeah. And so, so this is something we haven't seen much before. <laughs> You're right. You're right. And and so, you know, I've often wondered, um, like, there's so much, there's so much work to do yet, right, in terms of improving uh, sleep literacy, even this idea that um, snoring doesn't always mean that you've slept really well. And so one of the things I've been thinking about since we, since we chatted about this the other day, is this whole idea of keywords. Right. And of course, Google is like king of keywords. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and you said something to me that I never thought about, that sometimes people don't know what words to search for. And so if they don't if they don't put in sort of the keywords that we think they should, they're totally going to miss the information that we have for them. Exactly. So how, how does this device then? Is that is that something that will help us bridge this gap? Yeah, I think it's manifold. Uh, and, and, and the way I could look at that is possibly two ways. One is by increasing people's awareness of how to articulate how sleep is influencing how well they're doing. One, that can increase their awareness of like, oh, sleep is playing a role in how I feel. And then that might drive them to ask questions and find out the answers. But the other way is, you know, just looking at, for example, sleepdata.org, the national sleep research resource that Dr. Redline has proposed. When people put data up there, they have to come through what's called an ontology, giving terms that are uniform and understandable. And so since we're looking at sleep now from a new vantage point, we might actually have to start understanding that from clinical perspective. How do we actually interpret this? How do we use it? But then that also feeds back into how do you recognize these patterns? And the pattern 
is almost like the key word that you didn't know. Like somebody saying, oh, I feel run down or I have brain fog might be their way of conveying I'm sleepy on the upper sleepiness scale, but I just didn't know how to say it. And this is the same thing. This is almost looking at your patterns and what your body is telling us without you having to say the words that then might help search engine optimize those types of recommendations for you. And granted, this is not to sell products, right? This is com- this data, at least in the Nest Hub and also in the Google Health Sphere is obviously keep health where it needs to be and don't connect that to any of the other aspects of the Google ecosystem. But even doing that, even keeping the health space there, you can still look at the patterns and help people understand those patterns. And that's really basically your body telling you how you're feeling without you actually having to have a word for it is how that how we can use that data to help people understand sleep. Well, I never even thought about where that data goes. So I really appreciate that you guys have been thoughtful about separating that health data out from the rest of the data that, you know, I'm sure Google collects on a fairly regular basis. Yeah, that was one you know big fear that a lot of people had, particularly with the Fitbit acquisition. But I can tell you once I was inside <laughs> seeing what's going on, I'd say about 30% of the effort put into this project, including with me, was talking about privacy, making sure that people had an understanding and complete control of their data. Uh, that was a, well, a critical aspect. And you know, I was like, man, we're spending an awful lot of time talking. Can I go back and start crunching the numbers? They're like, no, everybody's, <laughs> everybody's involved in thinking about the implications of this. So it's, yeah, it's, it, it's for anybody who has any misgivings, Google takes this very seriously, as I'm sure all of the tech companies do. Wow, that's actually really reassuring to me. I appreciate you you sharing that. I mean, I never would have thought to ask about that. Well, it's a private space, right? I mean, they were very sensitive to that. We tell people what the two things are that are allowed to be done in the bedroom. And I guarantee every single person who asks about this product is what about that other thing? <laughs> well, I do remember when Fitbit put something out after the acquisition and they were really careful about saying that their privacy and their health um, information was separate. They're really careful about that. Absolutely. Wow. Well, thank you so much for your time today. And and thank you for being part of this disruption and representing us and bringing sleep to the table. Your work will really help all of our consumers better understand their sleep. And I hope that it also lets the clinicians let their guard down a little bit, right? Because sometimes um, we may not embrace the new technology as much as we want to. And so maybe this will allow us to maybe be a little bit more receptive to looking at the sleep technology when patients bring them into into clinical practice. Uh, Yeah, as long as we're at the table, hopefully we'll understand and make it useful so that we're comfortable with it. That's That's my goal. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at aasm.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Kosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well.